0: This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I am delighted to be talking with Michael Goriaran. Michael is the president at Arjuna Solutions, They are an artificial intelligence technology company that enables nonprofits to meet their donors where they are, to gain insights on donor sentiment and affinity based on their behaviors, and then ensuring that this knowledge is directly translated so you can ask for the right gift value, for the right impact area at the right time, helping us raise more money at a lower cost and saving us precious time. Prior to joining Arjuna Solutions, Michael served in executive roles in the global technology sector for more than 30 years with companies like Microsoft, Xerox, and other early-stage, high-growth business ventures. Michael holds an MBA from J.L. Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern University and a bachelor's degree in marketing with a concentrated study of economics and Spanish from the University of Rhode Island. He's an avid distance runner, an outdoor enthusiast, and an active parent of two with his wife, Chris. Michael is also the chairman of the board for the Oregon Council of Hispanic Advancement. Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management and online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomering.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. Welcome, Michael.
1: Tammy, thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege to be here with you today.
0: I think the privilege is all ours. So let's just jump right in. Here we are, we're in the home stretch of 2022 and nonprofits have big year-end fundraising goals, and many of them are feeling a little bit nervous about the economy. From your view, what's the state of nonprofit fundraising today, and how can fundraisers beat inflation?
1: One of the most interesting times in fundraising for a while, as I'm sure you would agree, it's uh, the challenges are somewhat formidable because we haven't had the economic conditions Uh, Really move around as much as they had between the COVID affected fundraising era of last year and 21. Things changed in the end of the year last year, where all of a sudden people started realizing that there was less disposable income because people started spending their money that they had not spent during COVID as they re entered the economy after post vaccination. So we noticed that the behavior of donors, especially in the low end, below $100, was materially affected beginning in the fourth quarter at the end of the third quarter, I should say, of 21. What happened in 22 is everybody knows that is inflation, but it was the same issue on giving patterns where giving patterns were being suppressed, both in the number of donors and the value of the gifts. And so now the question is, as you mentioned in my intro, is how do you find the donor precisely where they exist in their sentiment toward the nonprofit? And do you know when to ask, how much to ask, the critical insights of retaining donors? And that's where I think behavioral economics modeling, which is our core competency with AI, is something that becomes more interesting now than maybe what it was even in 21.
0: As you pointed out, donor behaviors have been changing. There are fewer donors, And what we're finding, according to the Fundraising Effectiveness Project reporting, even, you know, tracking through 2022, is that there are fewer donors and some are giving larger gifts, but gift values are really, I think, volatile. They're shrinking overall. So from your perspective, what's the smartest way to optimize fundraising costs while still achieving our fundraising goals and raising as much money as we possibly can for our missions?
1: So it's fascinating that the, the giving that we are seeing that is going down is below $500 and below $100 and below $50 in particular. And so we're starting to see that the, the percentage of the size of the gift is lower and the number of people participating is lower. But above $500, we are actually seeing that there's still an opportunity to do better than last year in terms of fundraising. And we're delivering this on a regular basis. We're seeing this firsthand. So there is elasticity in the higher levels of giving, and that rolls all the way up to $10,000. So we're seeing the gifts between $500 and $10,000 growing very nicely still, which is reassuring, honestly. The bulk of our donors, individual donors, 70% of the gifts that are made in the US is what we're all concerned about. So the opportunity then is really to say, how do you engage those folks effectively? And there's two aspects of it. One is knowing where they sit on the quote unquote demand curve, how strong is their sentiments, to the nonprofit. And then the other one, because of the increase in the cost of direct mail solicitation, which is a core critical pillar of fundraising to be more judicious about the frequency with which we are soliciting those donors, where the economics are being harmed by the increase in the cost of doing it, but also if you have less elasticity with a donor, it's not beneficial to continuously solicit them. So we're finding the donor where they fit, And then this opportunity to manage costs more effectively are the mantras of really being effective in fundraising today.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you look at the mix, the formula of direct mail, likely to those donors who have the strongest sentiment and the larger gift capacity, and then the portion of that formula that focuses on digital appeals like emails and the like, What advice do you have for nonprofits and finding the right formula for them?
1: So I think the key word is balance. And I can't say this enough or I can't emphasize it enough. It's not either or in these communications channels. It is getting the right communication through the right channel at the right time. And so that means having a balance across uh, your direct mail solicitations, your email solicitations, your online login process. When a donor who is an existing donor logs in, do they take advantage of resources that the nonprofit provides as part of you know their connection to the nonprofit? You're soliciting inherently once they log in, and since you know who they are, you really have the opportunity to optimize giving. The same thing with SMS or telemarketing, you know those types of you know text messaging things like that. All of these things are part of the formula, and we have the ability to look at artificial intelligence modeling across the channels to be able to optimize the balance of which channel at what time for which donor, and then how much to ask as the second uh, criteria. By getting that right, you have a nicely balanced fundraising process. It's not dependent on one or the other. And there isn't a world where it's only email or it's only direct mail. It has to be both, and I'm using email as a surrogate for all digital But if you can get the right cadence and the right amounts in place across the different channels, now you always have to have a good appeal. But I'm assuming everybody has a great marketing agency or great marketing internally. So getting the appeal right is really critical. The rest of it is the mechanics of balancing the solicitation count and the channel.
0: Well, I feel like for some of our listeners, the words artificial intelligence feels very futuristic, maybe even a little bit intimidating. You know, some of us don't realize that artificial intelligence is already alive and real in our everyday lives, whether it's, you know, what Amazon serves up to me as a potential, like something they're suggesting I purchase, or the facial recognition that I use to get into my iPhone apps. Talk to us about what it takes to adopt artificial intelligence. How do we bring board members and our CEOs or executive directors along to get their Mm buy-in for this concept that can seem a little scary.
1: Yeah, you really hit on a broad topic there because part of it is the ethics of using AI. Is this an ethical way to be fundraising, right? And so this is a very conscious, deliberate way of considering, is this right for me? And then the second one is the opportunity to be able to do this in a way where you are doing it so that it is maybe less cumbersome on you operationally. And then the third piece of it is when you are looking at the ways in which you can use AI, what is the right AI for you? So the first one is pretty obvious, yes or no, based on your ethics. And we have some white papers on this, but I would say ethical comes in two flavors. Are you exploiting the donor or are you enhancing your relationship with the donor? And it's obvious where we believe everybody needs to be is in the second area. So if we can enhance the relationship because we use AI to know more about the donor, their sentiment, their passion for the organization, that's good. If I don't use PII, then I also don't create this bias or ethical issue in the way I'm using artificial intelligence to discern the gift values. And I think the opportunity to be able to do this without having a lot of intervention with your staff is beneficial. What we have found is that when we gave our technology to customers, it was physically difficult for them to use it because they didn't have enough headcount to learn something new, do something new, And didn't have the expertise. So having the lack of headcount, having the lack of expertise, turned our direction toward delivering AI as a service. Now, some AI is passive also, where it's just the way in which your your experience works. Like when you think about a Tesla car, it has supervised AI where it knows all the rules of the road. And it's there whether you want it or not. And is keeping you from hurting yourself or hurting somebody else. We use a different type of AI, which is more interesting in my opinion, where it's unsupervised. It's operating on its own and has a series of rules that have allowed it to become more and more of an expert by itself internally. And being able to not have to intervene in using AI where it's a passive thing is better. But the way we've been able to deliver this to our clients is by doing it for them. And so that even though it is something that requires a lot of engagement, we have the expertise in-house to do it. And then we just meld into the customer's workflow. So there's a lot into the topics you brought up there, as you can see, between the ethics, the nature of the AI, what type of AI, and whether it's right for you, how to do it effectively. And these are all the things we factored into our decision-making with now it's almost nine years of experience in market.
0: So there's very much a consultative wrap around partnership when someone reaches out to Arjuna Solutions. You're not just getting a subscription to a set of tools but you're getting experts who help you understand what you need, how to apply it. Talk to us a little bit about that process.
1: So we try to have this philosophy of friction-free adoption. So if we literally say, is this going to create more friction or less friction? How do we make less friction all the time with everything? So, And you, you mentioned something that was very astute, which is that we do this in a consultative manner because we have lots of ways of applying our AI. And so we look at the campaigns, we look at the channels. It could be marketing communications as well as the solicitation channels and or communications, I should say, and the channels they use. So we can look at the whole spectrum around the cadence and the content in terms of really helping our customers smooth things out in terms of the frequency and the effectiveness of uh, fundraising at a less expensive lower cost per dollar raised. And by having our project managers, our account managers, and our data scientists on board listening to the customer and melding our capabilities or applying our capabilities to their business problems, that's been a real phenomenon for us in terms of our success case. So like any other engineering company, we brought a capability to market behavioral economics modeling with artificial intelligence. We went after the volume on the low end because of the reinforcement machine learning part. But as we talked to our customers, they were steering us to solve their biggest problems. And the biggest problems, yes, okay, we need to know how much to ask and when to ask. Check, check. That's our calling card. We you know, go in, we get a small pilot, the pilot does well financially and we're off and running. But then they started talking to us about how do I handle reactivating my lapsed donors? Cause my picking is like this i mail everybody or i decide i'm going to mail 30 percent and then the 30 percent of the ones that gave most recently so they have some formula but they say can you help us out with lapsed well, And we actually have a version of our ai capabilities for laps that is phenomenally interesting because it knows whom to select when and how much to ask which really optimizes both participation and giving and then most recently they were asking us can you help us out with planned giving which we had never thought about could you help us migrate people to major which we hadn't thought about. We were kind of staying below 10,000. But either with our capabilities or with specific partners, we've been able to bring solutions in those areas. So the more collaborative that we are, Tammy, the better things are for us in serving our customers because we see their problems and we use our data scientists to then pivot to meet their needs.
0: Incredible. You know, I've read several of the case studies that are on your website, really powerful testimonies for you know, what your software solutions, this behavioral science and the artificial intelligence, what you've been able to create with your nonprofit partners. Obviously, the case studies demonstrate how you're able to help them raise more money at a lower cost, right? Because you know when to ask and how much to ask, and you're not in what channel in which to ask. Who is the ideal customer? Like, what's the minimum threshold in terms of number of donors, where you can really make a difference, a big difference.
1: It's interesting. I get asked that question quite often, and it's an important question because who's your target audience? It's interesting that we can't answer it directly and say, oh, it's somebody making 10,000 solicitations a month, although that would be ideal, okay? (laughs) is uh, Usually it's a factor of how many solicitations, what is your response rate, what is your average gift amount? And when we start to see how your formula is working, Then we go into the capabilities we have and we apply them to the specific segments in which the donors are participating in your nonprofit. So we have some nonprofits where the average gift is $25, 24. I had one the other day, $24. Okay. We know that's inherently a low elasticity segment right now, right? This is visible to everyone. So then the question is, how do we apply the right capability to make sure that they stay optimized, the highest level of giving? And it may be 24 or maybe 25, and maybe that's it right there. And then the more important part of that particular segment then is how do you know how frequently to ask, which maybe if you're sending out 18 solicitations a year for $25, that may not be the best formula. And that's what the secondary AI services we have determine. And then in other aspects of it, we look at, I have a client that's relatively small in size, number of donors, Swarthmore College, but their average gift is unbelievable. I'll not quote it because it is uh, confidential, but it's in the hundreds of dollars, not $25. So someone like that with a very high response rate, you know, 40%, 50%, 60% response rate, same thing with uh, Albany Law School, you know, small, highly educated audience that has a high participation rate, high commitment to the organization. Well, you don't have to have that many solicitations to have a major gain there. And so we literally have moved a couple of these clients up 20%, 30%, 40% year over year in giving, which is insane. But you can see the recipe there. If they have that type of an audience in the higher end of giving, there's a lot of elasticity there. And if you can explain what you're going to do with the money, like this is one of the best practices that we see with our clients. If they can convert the ask amount increase all the way over to the fulfillment of their mission, then there's a higher propensity for participating at the higher level. So if I look at um, the Swarthmore case study, as they ended up producing a fund for helping students that were having a financial hardship during COVID. If I look at uh, Albany Law School, it's being able to facilitate greater alumni communications and collaboration. And by them being more participative, they get to know each other better. And there's a big opportunity for them on a regional basis to collaborate with other alumni. So if they can convert it to, you know, helping each other be successful or, or showing how someone else is going to be positively impacted from the funding, then it's a really positive opportunity for moving things forward in the right way at the right uh, segment level.
0: Yeah, yeah. To your earlier point, when you said, you know, there's an assumption that your appeals are good, that you are either your marketing firm or your internal, yeah. your collaboration with internal marketing folks is really strong because there is no replacement for an urgent and compelling need, yeah. right? And I, I'm seeing that, especially in a tough economy, people want to give to something that is really going to make a difference, right? In specific and measurable kinds of ways. And so the story is so important.
1: Absolutely. And to complement your last point as well, there's two things with AI, whether you're using our capabilities or anyone else's, that's important to know about, which is the frequency of engagement with the audience and the number of people you are engaging will help your AI perform better. So when I was talking about earlier, the average gift value and response rate, those are outcomes. And how you get those outcomes is those two other metrics is the frequency and the volume which is where we have an expertise in, but that allows what's called reinforcement machine learning to teach you about your audience more effectively. So when I look at the factor of how many donations, I said earlier, boy, it'd be great if someone was sending out 10,000 pieces of mail uh, per month, you create a nice little control group, you know, 5,000 versus 5,000, see how it works, Is statistically relevant, et cetera. But if you do that quarterly, you're less likely to teach the algorithm enough quickly enough to be able to have it be materially advantageous to you over the long run. You're gonna to wanna to have something more than quarterly type of solicitation, maybe once every two months, once a month, something of that nature. And then you really start to see donor sentiments in real time, and you can then move with the right amount, uh, the right amount to ask at that moment in time. Given the volatility of what we're dealing with right now, we haven't found a time that's more important than the current time to know donor sentiment.
0: Now, I know every circumstance is a little bit different. There are multiple factors, as you stated. But when do organizations begin to see the return on investment for AI?
1: That's a great question. AI, and whether it's us or anybody else, gets back to the general things about AI, not just our capabilities. It requires a learning cycle. And learning cycles are the amount of time it takes your your algorithm to go through an audience and get enough responses back where it kind of concludes that it knows as much as it's going to be able to know about that audience at that moment in time. What we have found is that's about a 60-day cycle for us. And you need to have now there's a setback schedule ahead of that 60-day cycle. And then there's a reporting stage and analytics stage. So your 60 may turn out to be 90 or 120, depending on those factors. But that would be one whole learning cycle. Now, that means also you could be mailing monthly or even twice a month. That's fine. That's a different matter. But if you have an in-market experience of 60 days and then you have to set back and reporting, that whole learning cycle needs to be replicated some number of times. And that for us is about three. So what happens is during the course of a nine to 12 month period, our customers go through this learning cycle where we can see us learning more about the donors and seeing the donations move. And in the first learning cycle, you might move things up 0 to 8%. That's our range in the first learning cycle. And we're doing that without any market input at first, obviously. We have to take the existing data and make an estimate. And then we start using reinforcement machine learning to check how the responses go every month. But once we get through those learning cycles, we're in a situation where the uh, algorithm is optimized. And then our average rate of return is about 12% higher level of giving year over year. And that allows us to bring a return on investment to our clients, usually of about 300%. I'd say worst case is about a 50% ROI, best case is 250% ROI. That's kind of our sweet spot in there. And at 250% ROI, you're getting $3.50 for every dollar you invest. And then we're very conscientious about making sure that our customers experience a very positive ROI or there's no justification in using these the uh, capabilities.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that is an incredible ROI. I wish my stock performance was doing as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mine too.
0: <laughs> and that's direct cost. That doesn't even factor in staffing, right?
1: Yes, this is just the direct cost, but you don't have to do anything. That, so it's we do the staffing because it it's our stuff. Yeah, yeah. So your net cost, and by the way, if I'm talking about cost for a moment, you have to indulge me, we're 10 cents per gift array. If I say, what is the cost of this? And then for that, we deliver the gift array values every month and they go into your printing or they go into your digital systems to go out to donors. And the whole thing we're focused on is donor experience. Do we know where that donor sits? Can we model their behavioral economics? And can we provide the right amount at the right time? And by doing that in a very time-sensitive environment like now, you just raise more money, about 12% more in a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And I think that isn't like best practice a seven to eight percent increase year over year without artificial intelligence.
1: I actually would be surprised to see that. That's not been my observation. So uh, I haven't seen organic growth like that. Now, if there are things that are going on where you shift a new strategy into play where you haven't been doing it before, then I would consider that, you know, the blue ocean kind of a thing where you're going. <laughs> sure. And if that doesn't grow, then that's surprising, right? That could grow 20, 30, 40% because you weren't really using it before, like email, for instance, or like social media marketing, right? But usually, no, I haven't seen organic growth of you know same file moving at the rate you're speaking about. That would be pretty remarkable. But I look at some of our most mature customers that are doing millions and millions of solicitations and have been doing this for decades. Yeah. If I come to them with a solution that even provides 5% lift, it's like a tsunami on that file. because they've done everything they have been able to do for decades to optimize the growth and participation in that file. And they're looking for the next thing. And then we come in and say, well, here's something we can prove. And then lo and behold, six, nine months later, you're getting 5% lift and you're getting a three to one payback uh, or two to one payback. That is a phenomenal experience for them. So that's been my experience personally.
0: Yeah, incredible. Our friends at Bloomerang know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips. Well, I know that fundraising teams in general, you know, we know they're under pressure to raise more money each and every year, and often with the same number of staff, or maybe even less, right? There's staff turnover, and those positions sometimes don't get filled. I was reading an article that referenced some recent research from the Gates Foundation, and essentially it was saying that artificial intelligence can save fundraisers time, meaning that tasks that maybe a director of development or director of fundraising operations might have focused on, that things that would take a week now can take just minutes, right? So what are you seeing on the impact of AI on staff, like freeing them up to do other things?
1: So it's I don't know why I keep thinking about Swarthmore this morning, but you know God bless Britz Ward. He's been an amazing person to work with over there. But his his case study is the ideal one to refer to, is he told me that during the summer he was spending forty hours an entire week and sleepless nights because Swarthmore is a small elite school and they have small number of donors that he would spend forty hours trying to calculate the appropriate gift or a value for each donor. He's been there so long. And knew the donor so well they had the curse of too much insight mm-hmm. so instead of using a blanket model like most of the time we see our customers using simple models like rfm for segmentation and then they have some multiple against prior giving history like 1, 1. 1.5 and 2 and those are the values they use in the gift string right and he was saying no i know my donors well enough that i can pick out the number for them and I would you know, put together a gift stream that I think makes sense, you know, for Tammy, for Michael, et cetera. And he said it was giving him an ulcer. Now it's the extreme, but it's pretty funny, it's the extreme, but he's knocked out 40 hours. And he said it was his biggest part of the improvement in his job satisfaction that he had had in years, because he could trust us with the right value, knowing that we would not underestimate or overestimate and alienate, that we would retain donors and get the highest level of giving. And it's just been a Fewer wrinkles in his forehead, so to speak, right? He's just focusing on now. Hey, maybe I can go serve the athletic area because they were they were not doing the who's been in a golf team or who's been in a you know soccer team where they could do some athletically oriented fundraising. So he started shifting his attention to other areas to raise money, which is more important than figuring out the gift array value, strategically speaking.
0: Yes, unbelievable. Maybe he can even take a vacation now. <laughs> Possibly. Michael, what advice would you give to any of our listeners who don't know where to start when it comes to exploring and embracing artificial intelligence in their fundraising shops?
1: Boy, that's an interesting one because there are so many flavors of artificial intelligence out there right now that it's pretty daunting. And uh, it's difficult to figure out, you know, whom do you talk to about what area of expertise? So there are some articles out there. We've written some, and I can also refer some for your audience where it talks about the types of AI and what are you trying to solve for Like We've been talking about fundraising. AI inside of a nonprofit is not just about fundraising. It could be about content management where you're using permutations of content for different audiences. It could be about channel management, things like that. So I say, first and foremost, what problem are you really trying to solve? Like Be specific about it. There are 21 types of AI. It will lead you down the path of the solution sets and the type of AI that you want. Then it helps you narrow down the vendors that you might wanna work with pretty quickly. Then from there, I would say, when you work with somebody, are they there to advise and understand or are they there to push product? And if anybody from my organization is pushing anything, they're in trouble with me because that's not our approach. (laughs) Our approach is let me understand as I've been articulating. What are the problems you're trying to address? How have you done it before? And how can we help you rethink some of these practices without creating turmoil? I don't wanna create operational turmoil. So by us giving you the services, zero operational turmoil. I don't want to create financial risk. So that's why we do it for our customers, so they don't have to do anything that is scary about using AI in a way that might alienate donors, right? So I think that having enough conversations with people who know the topic, even if it's not their area of expertise, like say somebody wants content management optimization, and I don't do that, I know enough about AI, what to use, and I actually know who does that in the industry. So then it's a different ballgame where you could say, well, here's who I would talk to. I talk to this person, that person, the other person. And that process is a little slower than just simply picking up the latest consumer reports evaluation of fundraising systems and have it tell you what it is. Sometimes those are a little easy to look at. But I think in this case, AI is still in the earlier stages of being adopted when it is deliberately and explicitly adopted, where it's already inherent in your platform. Like say you're using Salesforce and they use AI to manage workflow, well that's passive. But now we're talking about where do I proactively use it? to do things like moving people to planned giving or moving people to major giving or that type of thing. That requires a different set of sophistication and understanding the problem and consulting with you on ways to solve it. And then having a trustworthy partner who can deliver the capabilities to you in a reliable and predictable and risk-free manner.
0: It's just such a thoughtful approach that you've put together, right? You've got the right tools, the right Offering and even step up programs, it seems from what we've talked about and what I've read about on the Arjuna Solutions website. And this, this expert consulting, this insight and the fact that you're walking alongside these nonprofits for the long haul, right? This is not a one and done kind of proposition. This is a a real commitment, but a commitment that has a proven and tested return on investment.
1: I think one of the things I I thought that was interesting too, about if I am a nonprofit organization, we're always trying to find new donors, right? And at certain levels, these donors become much more material above a thousand, above 5,000, above 10,000, above 50,000, et cetera, et cetera, right? But usually from what I've seen is everybody has somebody on the bench that they have been cultivating, who is looking for a way of coming in and making a strategic impact. And this is one of those opportunities, whether we've done this many, many times, where we've taken somebody who's being cultivated and they become the sponsor of the first pilot projects for adopting AI. And usually if a donor is technologically or strategically oriented, they get really excited about getting behind that, especially if it materially changes the foundation of giving, where maybe there's even a less dependency on philanthropy because you start to build a better endowment by raising money in a more effective manner at the higher levels, you know, the 5, 10, 15, and 1,000 and above for planned giving. Because those things really start to put your endowment in place that allows you to earn interest to be able to drive your charter. But for those who are still growing, knowing how to re-engage or I should say engage these donors who are being cultivated with something exciting and interesting like this is, is an interesting talk track To We've been fortunate enough to have that happen many times.
0: So as you explore potential partnerships with nonprofit partners, is this also part of the value that you can add, coaching them on how and where to find potential investors to make AI a uh, reality inside their organization
1: we do and and i would say it's not so much coaching as much as asking and then say if you have somebody that's on the precipice of making a gift i'm happy to speak with that individual about our capabilities what they would do what the meaningful impact is for your organization and who where else who else we've used it with and then if that is a very you know non pressurized kind of a thing. It's more of an infomercial, if you will. And then <laughs> sure. let them become familiar. If that inspires them to give uh, because of the strategic impact or maybe they like technology, then that's been great for us. But usually we will fund it just on return on investment. If I'm giving somebody two or $3 back for every dollar they invest, it becomes self-funding after the first year. So a small pilot, it gets you off the ground. You see the case and the rest of it is uh, in-year cash flow improves. So it pays for itself.
0: Yeah. Impressive. And certainly there are more and more foundations that are giving two and three year grants for capacity building. And this is a, a very clear capacity building strategy.
1: And we have been fortunate enough to find a couple of those. And they've been very generous around this opportunity. And uh, it's interesting because when you think about philanthropy. Now people are thinking about how do I change philanthropy? And that's where we were fortunate enough to run into some strategic individuals who are putting together resources to help their own favorite nonprofits, and they happen to thankfully run into us. So it was a mutual opportunity to bring the right thing at the right time to be able to really enhance the performance of fundraising.
0: Well, and that's what we need. We need new thinking around philanthropy and the role that fundraising plays in it. So good. Well, Michael, this has been really informative and I kind of get all whipped up about this. The more I learn about it, It is exciting. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions just to (laughs) give a little little extra value to our listeners. Are you game?
1: Sure, put me right on the spot, go ahead. Okay,
0: Okay, (laughs) good. First question, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever heard?
1: You know, I, I would say that you shouldn't be hesitant to try different things and just keep it contained. And that was one of my first engagements with a client after being with Arjuna, where they were telling me how they managed that and gave me the, all the details about uh, how to manage risk in doing that.
0: Very good. What book do you recommend to our audience and why?
1: I'll give you a real wonky one here. I'll give you uh, Principles by Ray Dalio, D-A-L-I-O, Ray Dalio Principles. And what's interesting about that book is I think it is the kind of thing that would benefit any business, but even more so the nonprofit sector, because he talked about the principles that they used to make decisions about all kinds of things and how they advanced the business very effectively through those principles. The nonprofit sector is always challenged with a heavy relationship index And sometimes that makes it difficult to make objective business decisions. That's the trick in nonprofit fundraising is to get both balanced. And I think Ray's book is on the secondary point, which is how do I make effective business decisions and empower my organization to move forward with that? And then you've got to balance out this relationship
0: aspect. Mm -hmm. I love that. And certainly those principles will resonate with our board members as we're talking about how to justify these investments in AI to help us raise more money. Michael, what are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess?
1: So I think a followership, and it's probably the same in a lot of businesses, but followership is the key thing because in nonprofits, there are a lot of different activities going on. So whoever is the leader, not the formal leader in the organization, but the influencing leader, needs to be able to inspire followership. I always admire that because then, they can see where the opportunities and challenges are and channel the native energies and native capabilities of individuals to move toward addressing those opportunities. And then I would say the other one is um, objective calculation of the strategic and financial impact of the decisions you're making. What I don't see a lot in the nonprofit sector is dynamic resource allocation when things are underperforming. And I think that's an area of opportunity. I think that's a secondary one. And then the third one is the risk assessment of exploring new things, whether it's a process or a practice or a technology needs to be endemic to the individual. So there's not an excuse any longer where you can say, well, it's all technology. I don't understand it. I'm not saying people say that, but I've heard it in other instances in my life where you know they check out and say, well, I'm not a technologist, so I can't be held accountable for knowing about that. That just doesn't exist anymore because everything is technology, whether it is your car, it is the sneakers you buy, it's the clothing you buy. Everything has some aspect of technology and we all need to know about it so we can figure out what's the right formula for us in adopting new things. So those three.
0: Those are very robust. And I, especially the, the risk assessment, like that conversation, uh, it just brings back a lot of memories of when I was a direct uh, frontline fundraiser for sure. What is your favorite fundraising tool or application and it's okay if it's yours. <laughs> I was going to say, is this a trick question
1: here? Wait a second, is it? Obviously, always for obvious reasons is we just help people get a, a better insight into their donor behavior. And then I think as a result of having a better insight into donor behavior, they learn better how to serve them. And part of serving them is knowing how and when to communicate as well as being able to know how much to ask. I have a lot of respect for people in the industry that are... Colleagues, I would say, of mine who are in other companies, you know, if I look at another company I admire, like Sean Olds, the CEO over at Boodle AI, I really admire him a lot. And I like the capabilities he brings in finding the larger gift and, you know, knowing uh, whom to ask for that larger gift is different than what we do, you know, but I, I think that the capability he has and the services that he provides, I have a lot of regard for him.
0: Thank you for sharing that what's your favorite fundraising conference and i know this can get you in big trouble because you speak at many of them
1: yes i would say i love all my children equally let's talk <laughs> with that right uh you know we we've had good results most recently which i was very happy about with the ana conference in chicago and when i the reason i say good results is we had about 300 people in the audience and several hundred people online and customers when i walked off to take off my lavalier They were walking up to talk to me after the presentation and saying, I would like to get rolling. And as a result of that, you know, we seem to have done something with our five ways to beat inflation presentation, which you can see on our website, which really inspired them to say, I don't have an inflation beating game right now. And if I don't, then I'm just going to be susceptible to the effects of inflation. And I'm not saying that we're a panacea that we're going to make you immune, but we have a really good strategy to help you be more insightful and thoughtful about where your donors are. So I think that was a really beneficial one for us. There are other ones like the Bridge Conference. We hope to secure a speaking engagement this year. We like the quality of the audience and the ability to share strategically where things are going. So I think that's a good opportunity. We love associations like TNPA, where they bring enormous value to the industry, the nonprofit association, and they you know, are in a situation where they want people coming in to educate future leaders in fundraising and some of their seminars with uh, you know, future nonprofit leaders. So I think there's a lot of good opportunities in the industry, thoughtful opportunities. And for us, it's always the quality and level of the audience. And can we talk strategically about things where the industry is going?
0: Very good. All right. Last question. Knowing what you know about fundraising at this point in your career, what advice would you give a fundraiser who's just getting started in the profession?
1: Well, we've said a lot so far in the webinar. Good stuff to address this question, actually. But I would say... Uh, you know, being being able to continuously be in a learning environment and uh, being in an area where you can benchmark a lot of other nonprofits because everything is so public, it's the fastest learning curve possible. And whether you're in the Lilly School or you're or you're doing this informally in working groups like the TNPA offers, this uh, peer-to-peer benchmarking is the opportunity for success for somebody who's on the way up or just coming into the sector.
0: Yeah, I think that's such good advice. I remember way back in the day when I was a first a frontline fundraiser, so that goes back like almost 25 years. You know, it was really mostly about your people skills, your ability to engage people, to understand their values, what they wanted to accomplish with their philanthropy. And that's still important. But you can no longer get by on just that, right? You really do need to have data-informed strategies.
1: No Um, question. Yeah, We all know that 70% of the dollars that come into the nonprofit sector are from individual giving uh, aspects, you know, the donations that we've been talking about under $10,000. And so, you know, I I live in Oregon, so Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, can be very good for the University of Oregon, but the alumni from the University of Oregon, besides Phil, need to match his billion-dollar gifts with their own fundraising, right, or their own contributions, I should say. So having the formula to make sure that at every echelon of giving you have an explicit set of processes and technologies and capabilities whether you do them in-house or you do them with partners like us to be able to make sure every donor segment is optimized it'd be like sitting on a three-legged stool and one leg is shorter than the others you really got to make sure all the legs are fully operationalized even on the floor and that you don't give up this 70 percent of dollars from the individuals that are offset by large donations which you know is always very tempting for the chief development officer to be going after the big gifts like the president of the university does many times instead of really saying, I've got an engine to cover the rest or I've got capabilities to cover the rest.
0: Yeah, so good. Michael, you have been a real gift to us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity, Tammy. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. If you want to learn more about Michael and Arjuna solutions, we've included links in today's show notes, as well as links to the other resources that Michael referenced, like the white papers and the five ways to beat inflation video. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag, The Intentional Fundraiser, and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night, where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations, create a results driven donor centric development plan, strengthen donor relationships, improve your donor retention rates and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com forward slash transformers. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.